Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Hey friends, today is my annual Clicker Expo um, review, recap, etc. I'm not going to go through kind of an exhaustive review of, of everything that I did at Clicker Expo, but I am going to give you kind of what my key reminders were um, when I was in attendance. Because sometimes when you go to a conference, one of the biggest things you get out of it is just a reminder to go back to something that you kind of once once knew the importance of but but maybe forgot or maybe moved on from and my first example is husbandry and cooperative care training and i always get refreshed on this at clicker expo and get re excited about it because so many of the presenters talk about it in such elegant ways and have such amazing um, video and case examples that it's really inspiring so putting husbandry and cooperative care back into my weekly training rotation with my dogs is a big reminder um, that I got primarily from Ken Ramirez at, at this year's expo. And just some specifics that I think I wanna teach Felix would be some additional target behaviors. He's got a beautiful hand, uh, nose to hand target. He's got a really nice nose to object target so I use a nose to buoy uh, target for that and then but I I want to work on he's also got front foot and back foot targets but I want to work on a side a body target so a side of his body or like a shoulder target so I want to teach him to actually target a wall with the side of his body which will help us to kind of maneuver him in his exams a little bit better. So that was one idea that I got from one of the presentations. And then also teaching him a shoot type thing. So to walk between maybe say a climb and a wall and stay there and be comfortable with it. And that would make um, some of his husbandry procedures a little bit safer because he would be kind of blocked from spinning around, not blocked from getting out, but blocked from spinning around. And I just kind of liked the usage of that. In some of the video examples, they had, you know, maybe like a chain link fence that the vet was going to work through um, on the animal. And the animal was trained to go into like a large PVC pipe that was up against the chain link fence. So now the animal is confined and they're free to go at any time, but they're kind of confined to a, to a set space. And I think something like that would be really helpful for some of Felix's exam behaviors. So those are going in the rotation. And if you want to see any of those videos, I will be sharing them on the Patreon page. So you can join us at patreon.com slash cogdogradio anytime and you'll get access to those things. So the next couple of refreshers were really just um, validation, just making me feel a little bit validated in the work that I've been doing by hearing some professionals that I really respect talk about those things. And for me, the really big one was being validated in what I kind of casually refer to as operant counter conditioning. 
And I was validated in this by Lindsay Wood Brown, who is so fantastic. And she's absolutely one of my favorite presenters at Clicker Expo, one of my favorite humans on the earth. And she did this really fantastic talk um, in which she discussed focusing on operant behavior when engaging in classical counter conditioning protocols. Um, and in layman's terms, that basically means you're trying to change the animal's feelings about something. And in order to know when their feelings are starting to change, you're looking for operant behaviors that show up that tell you that. And when you can identify those behaviors, that tells you that you're able to move on to the next step. And then at some point, you're only shaping for that operant behavior and you don't actually reinforce the animal. Um, you don't actually reinforce any of the other behaviors that are happening. And the example that she primarily used was resource guarding. So if the dog is eating a bowl of food and, you know, the trainer puts kind of a rubber hand in the bowl of food and the dog looks up and wags its tail, then the dog gets marked and reinforced. Whereas previously we might just touch the food, or I'm sorry, touch the food bowl, throw some treats down, touch the food bowl, throw some treats down. Um, and we may do that in the very beginning to produce the head up tail wag. But once the head up tail wag is there, we're actually selecting for that in the process rather than trying to take a counter conditioning approach. This is how I do most things. Um, this is how I taught Felix to be okay with his bath. This is how I taught uh, Felix to be okay with things falling down. So namely, I worked really hard on him accepting jump wings falling over because that's something that happens in dog agility and I didn't want it to be traumatic for him. And I thought that it would be based on some other behaviors that I saw. So all of these things are were done this way and watching Lindsay put it out there in such an elegant manner really helped to solidify some of the things I thought I was seeing and also helped to um, just kind of validate the path that I feel like I'm on with behavior change. And I'm planning a further episode on, you know, kind of discussing this a little bit more at length, but definitely put your questions over on the Patreon page about that if you're interested. And I'm just going to read this quote that Lindsay shared, which is a quote from Dr. Susan Friedman, and it goes, select the operant behavior offered to you in the flow. The emotions will follow it. This was one of the slides and I took a picture of it because I found it to be so profound because it that's exactly it. We engage in a counter conditioning process, but we need to watch for the behaviors that the dog starts to intentionally do because Counter conditioning, classical conditioning, these are respondent conditioning um, examples. Sorry, hung up on that word for a second. Um, these are examples of respondent conditioning, which means that they have an effect on respondent behavior, not operant behavior. And respondent behavior is our behaviors that the animal doesn't have control over. They're reflexive behaviors versus operant behaviors the animal does have control over. And so those are the behaviors that we as trainers should be looking to reinforce in our training sessions. And just generally speaking, we got to let behavior tell us when to push that threshold because we need to be pushing the threshold all the time in our training. And if we're not pushing the threshold, we're not getting the animal better. 
And pushing it without crossing it can be done if we're watching for that operant behavior that the animal is offering. So more on that to come for sure. The last little piece of validation that I picked up was in queuing. I got to go to a fantastic panel. Um, it was led by Dr. Susan Friedman and the people sitting on the panel were Hannah Brannigan, Alexandra Kurland, who both have podcasts themselves. Um, definitely check them out if you haven't already. And Sarah Owings was also in the, in their friend of the pod, Sarah Owings. And this really beautiful conversation about how we can teach cues better and insert cues into our learning process better uh, ensued. And it was, it was fantastic. Some of the questions from the audience made me think that this is still a concept that we as a profession are not understanding, which is something that when I finally understood it, it became really clear to me that it's not widely understood. And so cueing as a as a procedure is something that kind of there is a science on how to do it there's a there's a process on how to do it and then you can insert kind of your personal choices which is what the panel was about was kind of these amazing professionals and what they have done to kind of improve cueing or improve their process, their procedure of adding cues to behaviors in in real time, in real life. And it was, it was fantastic. The video examples were so great. It was one of the most entertaining um, sessions that I went to for sure. And I have a cueing video, Cliff Notes of Cueing, that I'm going to share over on the Patreon page that just kind of goes over the basic process and actually has a lot of the stuff that was talked about um, on the panel. So that's where that validation comes in. And the big thing is train a base behavior from which to cue from and understand that that base behavior is also on cue and you have to be careful about that. So I call it a standby behavior. It's essentially I cue it by standing still with my arms at my side, my dog, is supposed to stand and look at me during that uh, cue that I'm giving. And from that, I will give cue, give more cues. And that's different from, I also have a cue for my dog to try stuff in a session and I will have my hands in front of me or in my lap. So in front of me, um, kind of crossed if I'm standing or in my lap if I'm sitting. And so that's my cue for my dog to try stuff versus my cue for my dog to offer me a standby behavior is that I'm standing with my hands at my side. And it's important to train those things as well before you try to throw a bunch of cues at your dog and, ha and you know, incite confusion in the poor animal. So I'll be sharing a video on Patreon of that as well. If you've never been to Clicker Expo, I really highly recommend it. I was in Seattle this past weekend, which was great for me because I could drive. Um, and it's going to be in Irvine, California next year, which is great for me because I can go to Disneyland. So I hope to see you guys in California if you've never been or even if you have been. Make sure you grab me to say hi. And now we've got some Patreon questions for you. We've got a nice collection here. So, all right, let's start with Elisa's question. How do we maintain agility behaviors once they are fluent? How much do we need to reward them once they're learned? Do you just randomly reward them from time to time? And this one has a 
specific scientific answer, which is that all behaviors, you know, if we want to make them robust against extinction, so if we want them to last, we want to, yes, move them to a variable reinforcement schedule or a random reinforcement schedule. Um, that is important to do. What That's really hard for humans. Humans are really hard, have a really hard time being truly random um, or truly variable. And I would say don't worry about that. Just worry about reinforcing really beautiful things that you like that you would like to see continue. So if you are running a course and your objective is to get through this course clean, but you're in training and your dog does the best dog walk contact you've seen her do in weeks, get in there and reinforce it. If you cue a, you know, a blind cross or something like that, that your dog doesn't always get right, or maybe for my dogs, it's usually rear crosses that they might get wrong because I seem to be allergic to them. Um, but so I'll cue a rear cross. If, if Felix nails a rear cross right now, I'm going to pay it because it's not an easy behavior for him. And that's an easy thing for me to do is to just watch, pay attention, reinforce when I see things that I think are beautiful that I would like to see continue. Other than that, you reinforce uh, frequently anytime you're working on the you part of the team. So if you're in a handling kind of scenario, just reinforce frequently so the dog is hanging out there with you and doing fine. And obstacle performance, just reinforce the great ones. Reinforce really good stuff. Do not get in a trap of reinforcing the dog walk every time, the weave pulls every time, that kind of thing. Because then the trial is going to feel disappointing to the dog because they're not going to get paid. So it should be as random as possible, as variable as possible. And that's once they're fluent, like you mentioned. But in order to do that, I would just say watch for really amazing things. If you get a, an above average performance in any way, pay for it. And then a couple of things are going to happen. One, your behaviors are going to maintain, but also your those really beautiful behaviors are going to be more and more frequent. So keep raising the bar as well. All right. Nisa says, what does your winter training look like when it becomes too cold to spend significant amounts of time outside? How do you use your indoor space to train? and avoid going stir crazy. Well, I am really lucky that I've got kind of a one and a half car garage space that I've that we've made into a training area. So I do train in there most of the time right now because it is either raining or extremely cold. And I'm really good with like a mist or cold, but mist and really cold is hard. And right now it's actually been snowing. So not a lot of agility to be done while there's snow on the ground. And I work on what I call micro skills in that space. So micro skills are reinforcer skills, um, things for obedience like pivots, scent discrimination, retrieves can all be done inside. A lot of the time I find myself really working hard on obedience during the winter and then going back to agility in the summer. I can fit one jump in my garage space. So I also work one jump work. And right now with Felix, I'm working really hard on uh, jump verbals. So understanding that push means find the backside no matter what. And that look, look means, you know, find the throttle side no matter what and that kind of thing. So we're working on micro skills because we don't have as much space. And my dogs don't go stir crazy because I still bear the weather to walk them. It doesn't really matter how nasty it is. Um, with few exceptions, I pretty much get out there on the trail so they, they don't go stir crazy. And I also provide, you know, extra food-based enrichment during this time so that, so that it's not a huge deal. 
Okay, this one comes from Kristen, who just had a litter of puppies. And she says, as you noted, there are many people out there who use programs such as puppy culture and other socialization protocols in an effort to increase resilience to stress, noise, and new situations. As you noted, there are a gazillion pieces of advice regarding puppy socialization, the most common seeming to be flooding, particularly with noise. I don't have a TV, therefore my house is fairly quiet. I've had people suggest that my house needs to be more noisy in general so that the puppies are habituated to noisy places, but honestly, I have a hard time wrapping my head around that. I feel like most adult dogs have more observable responses to noises that appear to come out of nowhere than to humdrum noises. That said, I do have a radio plan to do noise resilience work with them, but I wondered if you had any concerns over having a quiet household. So all of that to kind of say, is there a concern in raising puppies in a quiet household? I would be really curious to know if there's any research on this. I did not find any, but I would actually argue that probably there is. Probably somebody has done something on this um, with litters of puppies. I've got a potential guest in the works to talk about noise phobia, um, so kind of hang tight on that. But here's what I know, and I understand that I'm not a breeder, nor do I play one on TV, and if I ever talk about breeding litter, can somebody just slap me? Because it's it's not a sane thing for a person like me to be doing. Um, but know that, yes, just playing the noise, playing noise all the time is flooding. And if it's bothersome to the puppies, it's also activating their nervous system kind of all day long, the entire time it's happening. And that's not a good thing. The more active the nervous system of the breed also, I tend to think the less neurological stimulation they should have as puppies. Now, that's 100% anecdotal. So do not take that as gospel. But I do think that we should be paying attention to what puppies grow up to be like when they have a lot of neurological stimulation versus not very much versus kind of a happy medium in our agility breeds. We should really specifically be paying attention to that and looking at it over generations. If any of you is a breeder of a, what I would call a breed with an active nervous system like Border Collies and you have some data on this, I would love to know about it. Send me an email. Um, but generally speaking, Kristen, I don't think there's a problem with having the house be mostly quiet and then exposing the puppies to noise events um, or noisy things. Like I saw, I have been following your litter and I saw you introduce them to kind of a noisy, weird toy that, that walks around, a kid's toy. Something like that is perfect. So it's loud, it's weird looking, and they're allowed to explore it, decide it's fine and then move on, and then they can go back to their quiet. That's my opinion um, on it. Uh, but again, not a breeder and I'm also not a researcher in this area. So there probably are smarter people than me to answer this question. But that's my opinion as of today. All right. Suzanne asks, behavioral wellness, suggestions and thoughts providing safe options for food-based enrichment in a multi-dog household that includes a resource garter. Also a history of guarding space where resources used to be. Well, Unfortunately, there isn't a great answer other than management here. What I would want you to pay attention to, so what that means is basically providing the food-based enrichment in specified separate areas. 
But I would also provide it to the garter in only one space so that the garter doesn't generalize their guarding space and maybe they only guard that one space. So I would do one X pen in the corner or one crate where the garter gets to have their food-based enrichment. And then I know that space will be guarded against the other dogs and I can, you know, manage around that or actively modify that behavior with that specific area. Suzanne also asks, will Synergy 2.0 be a thing? So that's the R plus 2.0 camp I teach with Shade Weitzel and Amy Cook for our friend Megan Foster of Synergy Dog Sports. It is becoming a thing. We're planning several 2020 dates all over the country, so stay tuned on that. And let's see, for our last one, we will hear from Bronwyn who says, how do I not stuff up my puppy who I hope will be my star obedience rally agility partner? Is it possible to overwhelm slash overtrain her? I bring her home the 17th of January. I have a timeline in my head that obviously will need to adapt to her, but I'm just stressing myself out. The big thing Bronwyn is understand this. You will make mistakes because we always do. So you're not going to be perfect. Something will go wrong with the puppy. So just embrace that now, accept it now, and move forward. The other important thing, though, is to know that you can overwhelm her and you can overtrain her, but she's the one who tells you what's happening. So if I've had puppies that were ready to learn everything on day one, and I've had puppies that needed a year to learn what I thought were basic things. You need to listen to the dog that is in front of you. If learning is going slow in one area, allow it to go slow. If it's going fast in another area, allow it to go that quickly. The big important things we need to do with puppies are socialization and based. And I did a whole podcast on that. So definitely check that out. But generally speaking, you know, the answer is yes, you can overwhelm and overtrain, but you can also make yourself a star by following some, you know, some good baseline advice and understand that some puppies come to us really ready to learn any performance thing and some puppies need a little bit more time and it really just depends on them developmentally. It depends on their genetics. It depends on their history. It depends on so many things. So just allowing your puppy to dictate the pace at which you go, that's the best thing to do. And think really hard about the what my friend Shade White so calls the spaces in between. What that means is the behaviors that we leave out, the behaviors between the performances. So think really hard about happy, quiet creating, walking connected with you through a crowd, being able to settle and wait their turn at a seminar. These are things that you want to focus on when they're babies, before they're addicted to training, before they're addicted to sports teach them how to be calm and wait their turn because if you don't do that and instead you just teach them to be addicted to sports then they won't be able to wait and the problems you will have will be that the puppy cannot settle in a crate that you cannot go to a seminar because the puppy can't wait its turn um things like that you don't want to deal with that stuff and now is the time to work on those things so focus on the basics focus on doing simple stuff really well rather than thinking about all of these big goals that you have and you're going to do just fine.
Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the Cogdoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.